24 hours a day, right here on WBBM AM News Radio 78. We're in touch with Chicago. This is Fooditor Radio. For almost 50 years, Sherman Kaplan was a news anchor on WBBM Radio in Chicago. And for about 35 of those years, he was also a restaurant critic, on the radio and in magazines and books. His son Josh Kaplan got his start selling hot dogs at a hot dog joint on the North Shore, and went on to become a manager and sommelier at top Chicago restaurants. Now he and chef Mark Newman own Bellaro, an upscale Italian restaurant in the North Shore suburb of Highwood. What's it like to run a restaurant when your dad's a critic? What's it like for a critic when your son goes into the business you've been watching from the other side all these years? We sat down at Bellaro one morning, interrupted by the occasional delivery man, to talk about this unique version of the father and son relationship in the restaurant industry. Let's start with, how did you get into reviewing well, food? Okay. That's not where you started. Uh, no. Uh, I guess we should start with, I was born in a log cabin <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away. And it wasn't until my second century of life that I met Obi-Wan, who taught me to use the lightsaber. Sunkick's father under table. <laughs> How did I get involved in restaurant reviewing? Yes. Um, we came to Chicago in February 1969, and I was working here for about a year and a half or so. And I noticed that all the newspapers had restaurant reviews. And to be honest, I'd never heard of restaurant reviews before then. I mean, the biggest name I knew in food was Duncan Hines, and having your name on a cake mix seemed the greatest <laughs> thing you could have. But uh, I saw that there were restaurant reviewers writing for the Sun-Times and the Tribune, and I thought, well, we're kind of like the all-news station. I think we should have a restaurant reviewer, and I was interested in food, not especially trained in it, but interested as a general diner. So I went to our news director at the time, Van Gordon Sauter, and I proposed the idea, and he kind of, you know, mulled it for a while, a few weeks, and then he said, all right, there's a new restaurant that is opening in the John Hancock Center. I want you to go out and review it. That was the 95th, and that was my very first review. And it caught on after that, so I kept doing them week after week after week, and never interrupted until I had bypass surgery in 1991. I was out for eight weeks, went back to restaurant reviewing, and uh, only stopped reviewing in 2010, I had stopped at WBBM a couple of years before that because they just cut out the restaurant reviews. It was a budget thing. But I went, I was reviewing for North Shore Magazine, which no longer exists. And uh, I started reviewing for them in 2010, I think, maybe a little earlier, and reviewed for them until they finally stopped publishing a couple of years later, three or four years later. It sounds like every story of how reviewers well, it is true. You're, go you're at the victim of the economy and of the publication that you write for. So, yeah, so this was the 70s, 80s, 90s, yeah. a very different landscape. What, what was the reviewer landscape? Because certainly you were part of it. Well, I see you at, I you was know. a very small part. I mean, it was radio. You know, for anything to have any real validity, you had to see it in print. Um, the big reviewers were uh, the Kelsons for Chicago Magazine. I think Pat Bruno was reviewing for the Sun-Times then, and I think Patel, Phil, was reviewing for the Tribune. Those were the big three, and I was just playing catch-up. And, I mean, any time I got any response from a, from a listener, I was delighted. Uh, didn't get a lot of it. You know, people only call you or contact you if they got something to complain about. We didn't have the Internet then. Right. So they, they, couldn't, they couldn't blast you on Yelp or Facebook or any other place. It was an 
entirely different landscape. There weren't uh, 2,000 comments on every uh, radio? not. I would have loved that. You know, it, it doesn't matter what they say about you as long as they spell your name right. Right. But uh, things picked up, and by 1977, my first restaurant review book was published called Best Restaurant Chicago. It was a publishing company out of San Francisco, and I knew about them because I had read that they had done books in other cities. And I don't remember the name of the company, but uh, I contacted them. They seemed very interested. I gave them a few sample reviews, and we reached a deal. So the first book came out in 1977, and uh, subsequent volumes came out about every three or four years until the last one was maybe 1996, 1999. About eight or nine different volumes, though. Okay. Um, so that was, that was the book part of it. I also did a book with then Chicago, a Chicago Tribune food editor, um, Carol Haddix, exactly. And we did a book of ethnic food shops. Uh, as we got into it, we real, I mean, she realized it, I think I realized it, our hearts were not really in it. It was a difficult book to research, uh, much easier to write, but a difficult book to research. Um, and why was that? Uh, just because you had to visit every one of these stores and it just took some time and I lost interest in it. I don't know that she lost interest as much as I did, but I did. We did the book. It came out. It was a rather slim volume, about 120, 130 pages, and it sold okay. But I mean, none of the restaurant guides, even the books, ever sold more than ten or 14,000 at their best, which I guess for a local market book is not too bad. It was fun to see myself listed in the Library of Congress right. and <laughs> ISBN. That was cool. Well, and I think, you know, that in anything you see how small the real serious community yeah. is for it. I mean, yeah. to me, I mean, as soon as I got here, I mean, I'm, I'm gathering guidebooks and I'm going to restaurants and I would see your mm -hmm. reviews typed up and on yeah. WBM stationery right. and pasted in, 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 the, the, yeah. in the front and of the restaurant. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was definitely part of the, the scene. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, I, I didn't go without recognition and admittedly, a restaurant reviewer should be in the background. I mean, we, we have to be anonymous to be valid. Uh, and I always was, and I did my best to protect my anonymity using a, a fake name to make uh, to make my reservations or having somebody else make them, so just in case my voice was recognized. But well, I did. and that's the question. Yeah. You can hide your face, but that voice, everyone in Chicago <laughs> heard that voice well, at some of, point. a lot of people did, yes, but it was amazing how many people didn't, which is, you know, it's just what it is. Um, I never considered myself a big star. I was just... You know, second echelon luminary. That was fine for me. It was radio, and that was the place of radio. You know, there were big stars. You know, there was uh, Wally Phillips, Bob Collins, uh, uh, Bob Surratt. Uh, I mean, the big, the big radio names. But uh, I was never among, um, among those, and I didn't expect to be for what I did. I did get some very nice recognition along the way that I was very proud of. First of all, being nominated for a James Beard Award in 1994 for. Um, under the category of Best Restaurant Reviewer Radio. Um, and then I won an International World Radio Foundation, I think that's the organization, gold medal, um, which I have up in somewhere in the house. <laughs> and then uh, I have the... He knows exactly I, where he I, is. I, I, I have, yeah. I have the, the James Beard pro, uh, uh, proclamation up, uh, up on, in my shrine, as I call it, in my <laughs> office. I won some Lissagor Awards along the way for restaurant reviews, but also for serious journalism, which, frankly, I thought was more important. Uh, that, that made me very happy. Uh, but needless to say, our radio station did nothing to promote what I did. That was a dis <laughs> major disappointment. So, Josh, you grew up in this world. Yeah. 
Uh, did you go to all these restaurants? I went to a handful of them, um, but I was, you know, I was pretty misbehaved, so I didn't get to go to the fancy ones. Um, so no I memories was, of Le Paraquet for you? No, I, I, you know, looking back on it, I wish. Well, look, those, I wish were, I had those, those memories, were, but you didn't take me to Those weren't children's restaurants. They we were. did take it to places like Sally's Stage. Yeah. You remember absolutely. that one? That was Zephyr. a gold one. Yeah. Zephyr. Yeah, things like that, which were clearly Family. geared for families. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it got out from time to time, but uh, it wasn't a deliberate oversight. It was just I didn't think these kind of restaurants that I reviewed were necessarily children's restaurants and that you would like anything. Right. I gravitated more to the working in restaurant, and, uh, and I worked in a restaurant in high school right down the street. Michael's. Yeah. That's where you got your nickname, Yachi. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and where does Yachi come from? Oh, uh, guy who still works there, Salvador Rojas. Uh, my name's Josh. Josh became Yash. Yash became Yachi. <laughs> you weren't interested in food as food I, so much. I, I love I me. Mean, I loved eating, and I, I certainly had a healthy appetite. But I, I wasn't fascinated by food until I was in my early twenties. Um, but as a kid, it was just a normal interest. In, it was just eating sustenance. Well, you used to joke to me when you were at uh, KU and you were a member of a fraternity. Oh, by then I was 20. Right. Yeah. And I remember you told me that's where you learned how to eat prison food. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Did your dad walk into Michael's and you immediately uh, freezed up because you worried you were about to get removed? No, Michael's, I had fun. I, I, I loved it. I genuinely enjoyed it. It was working the counter, but I, I made it fun. And it was real and fun for me. One of the things that Joshua picked up certainly at Michael's and we were aware of right from the very beginning is this very strong work ethic that he had then and has developed until today. I mean, this is, we would call Joshua wherever we was working if I had an occasion to call him on the phone. His immediate reaction was, I can't talk now, I'm working. Call back later or I'll call you back. He devoted every one of his paid minutes to his employer. And even now, it's it the actually same happened thing. as recent as yesterday. It happened as recent <laughs> as yesterday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So tell us about your your restaurant here. We are in Highwood. Yes, indeed. Which is toward the North Pole for people in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. It is. But you know, Highwood's got a nice little restaurant scene, and you know, we thought we could differentiate from what's here. We we are contemporary Italian, which basically allows us to do really whatever we want with Italian ingredients, and as opposed to do you know something down the street like Del Rio, which is very more uh, spaghetti, meatballs, lasagna, veal marsala, etc. It's great, it's lovely, but we can do something different. We wanted to differentiate in the menu as well as the atmosphere and the look of the place. And in my mind, uh, this is this we are in the, this is a neighborhood city restaurant. You know, this restaurant could be in Andersonville or, or Bucktown. That was my inspiration uh, to kind of have a, a city-like vibe for all the people up here that may not want to go downtown for that sort of experience. You've got some of those comments. You've gotten some of those comments on. Yelp and Open Table reviews, where they pointed out that you are a, like an urban restaurant in the suburbs. Super duper. Yeah. yeah. Exposed brick. It's just the yeah. That yeah, involves. I mean, okay, it's it's not maybe original, but it it works and it looks good. Yeah, I'm happy right. with it. And it, yeah, it's in well, it's in a vintage building too. Yeah, so yeah. It's an eighty-year-old building. Um, it's been many things. Most recently, it was a sports bar. It was a taxicab station uh, in the sixties. Um, you, you did know. a huge remodeling though when you took yeah. over this. Place. Yeah, we just. Did a lot of build up. Just tried to expose it. And D Sports Bar is. It, it, yes, the TVs went <laughs> good, goodbye. No TVs. I, 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 one thing I want to point out it's really important, and Josh, you know, he wouldn't say this, but everything that is here is his and Mark Newman's idea. I contributed nothing to this except, except suggesting the artist whose paintings adorn the walls here, a man by the name of Ezra Siegel, 
But, uh, I mean, in terms of the concept, the look of the place, the furnishings, everything was Mark and, uh, and Josh's. And, I mean, my wife and I would make suggestions. And oh, you weighed in frequently, as, which is a, a natural <laughs> and instinct. And we'd get a general, oh, that's nice, thank weigh-in. you, and a roll of the eyes, and Josh would go on and do what he intended to do. Anyway. Well, what you is, know what? I can, what does he know about restaurants? <laughs> anyway? That's exactly the point. I don't. I thought I did. You know from this end. I, exactly. You know from, from the diners, but I don't know Absolutely. from the inside end. And I came to realize that creating a restaurant or virtually any business that has a particular theme where you've got to fill in the four walls and make something of it, it's like, it's like being a film director. You have a vision. Your job is to communicate that vision to everyone you work with so that they understand exactly what you're right. looking for. It's just the world's as, largest train set. Just, well, there you go. It's <laughs> just as Mark had a vision of the menu, and Josh had a vision of what the front of this place ought yeah. to look like, and you succeeded. So people have gone for it? Yeah, yeah, it's been a very good start, absolutely. We're I'm thrilled with how it's started. Yeah, how old is the restaurant? About seven months. Seven months, okay. Yeah, but I'm looking at a 30, 40-year trajectory, so right. it's <laughs> barely the beginning. You're going to be 80 years old when you're starting? Absolutely. So, okay. Nothing else good to do. for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, we're talking about how the reviewing landscape has changed. What, how do you feel about it? I mean, you're, you're too far to get the city to pay attention to you. Well, North Shore Magazine is gone. What is the I had a conversation landscape? with my wife about what are the drivers? What is bringing people into the restaurant? Number one is word of mouth. That trumps everything up here. I can't speak to, you know, downtown, but word of mouth is number one. Number two is... Um, then there's Chicago Magazine. We got a placement in Chicago Magazine and media placements, and that's helped a lot. And then I think Yelp help helps for, for, you know, I know a lot of people in my industry don't love it. I, I have no beef with Yelp. It's helped. And it's important, and it's part of the dialogue, and it's driven people to this restaurant. Uh, so I'll take it. And, you know, getting reviews. We, we got reviewed in NS, so that's nice, too. Yeah, okay. you've gotten reviewed on the magazines that are community magazines. Right. And yeah. generally favorable. Yeah. It helps. Those people that just walked in thought we were open for lunch. They had a, the clipping in their hand. <laughs> Which people was that? Manetka. Did somebody just come in? Oh. Yeah, yeah. They thought we were, the article didn't say we were closed I for, see. for lunch, so yeah. they wanted a burger. Oh, yeah. Too bad. Just, yeah. <laughs> Try Michael's. I, I send them to Miramar. <laughs> Gabe will like you for that. Yeah. Um, so what was, how did you feel about how the restaurant scene evolved over time? I mean, to me, it's like you, you went through a period that sort of yeah. created the modern scene. There, yeah, I mean, there, there were some clear evolution, and, uh, you know, it, it, evolution is slow. It's not, it doesn't happen like that, necessarily. It wasn't a revolution. It was an evolution. There were a few revolutionary things that happened, among them the birth of the French Nouvelle Cuisine which changed the landscape of most of the French restaurants here. They got away from the, the thick cream sauces and the tableside service and came using lighter fare. Using locavore products without that concept even being in anybody's mind as a word. Uh, Le Parquet paved the way there with uh, Jovan Trebojevic who opened that restaurant. Uh, before that he had his own restaurant called Jovan which was on Euron Street. Le Parquet was on Walton Street. You went up a kind of a gated wireframe elevator was very European. It's on the second floor and you walked in and greeted at the desk and the place was hushed. It was that's another thing, a big change. <laughs> Back then you could go into a restaurant and people spoke in ordinary conversational tones. And we noticed this when we just got back from uh, Paris and you go into a French restaurant 
There's no yelling, there's no screaming, there's no problem with noise. Everybody is talking at this kind of a level and everybody is hearing themselves at their table without intruding on anybody else. That's, well, the, that's the worst change. That sometimes the physical years. space dictates that. Well, that's the case that. in this restaurant. Well, it's our number that. one knock. But I think it's also, I think it's, I think it's just part of the cultural, the cultural milieu, if yeah. I can use that. Well, yeah, some word. places turn the music loud so that yeah. then the, well, or like the, the Blackbird deliberately put the tables and right. the chairs together because they wanted it to feel like Manny's. You know, they wanted it buzz. There you go. It creates an excitement. That's an artificial excitement. Let the food be the excitement. So that's just my old-fashioned point of view. But getting back to the other transition, so you have the Nouvelle Cuisine, and then we have this tremendous interest in ethnic restaurants that had been here all the time because Chicago is such a wonderfully diverse ethnic city, so that became very popular in searching out new restaurants in the city. Then you had the growth in the suburbs of restaurants probably spearheaded by uh, Le Francais and Jean Bachet, and then subsequent French restaurants that opened, Alouette here in Highwood, uh, Le Vichyssois, Lake Villa, I believe it was, um, the restaurant on Dundee Road, uh, Pierre Pullen's restaurant, whose name escapes uh, me. Before the, that, it was a man named Paul, Crit, Paul Ziegler, 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 who also owned Alouette. Uh, so we had this growth of French restaurants clustered around. In Lockport, you had two guys who opened a restaurant that is still there. I mean, so the, the suburbs have contributed to the dining scene in their own way and in a very positive way. Um. Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the big changes, and this is maybe just in the last 10 years or so, is that the high end became less formal in a lot of places. Very much so. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I remember the first time I, I used to go to the bakery a lot, and the bakery was a hugely popular restaurant at a very moderate price, but it introduced people to a whole way of, a more set way of dining, five courses, all one price. Louis Sotomayor was the genius behind that. And it was a place that uh, was very eclectic in its decor, but there was always white tablecloths, cane back chairs, uh, waiters wearing tuxedos. And I remember the first time we walked in there and they had dropped their dress code. And I was rather shocked at that <laughs> because I just thought this kind of restaurant held a standard, even though it was not one of your ultra gourmet restaurants. It was a very popular restaurant. I still felt that it should have a dress code. It didn't. And as one of the uh, owner, Louis' brother, Geza, said to me, he said, well, you, you just have to go with what people want. He's right, you know. That's our uh, job, give people yeah. what they want. Yeah, That is yeah. our job. My wife constantly tells me, you can't go dressed like that. I say, why not? I do. So sometimes I put on a different shirt or a different pair of jeans and I come in and Josh is dressed like that. So, you know, which is perfectly acceptable. It's, it, this, is, this is what the way people dress, very casually. If I was going to well, a restaurant like Luna Mod would certainly dress different. I might even wear a necktie. I don't even know if they demand neckties. I'm sure they demand jackets. Uh, Everest is a restaurant that I know, no doubt still demands jackets. There are a few of them, not many, more in New York than, than we have here, but more is everything in New York, the good and the bad. Right. <laughs> one, of, one of my pet peeves about restaurants is those restaurants that will not take reservations. And that says to me they're in business for their convenience, well, not mine. And I know you're going to beg to differ with that. that. A bit. I understand that. Yeah, you know, a do. small restaurant has to maximize those seats. If you've got 40 seats in your restaurant, yeah. they've got to be occupied at all times. So you got to factor in the, the no call, the no show factor, people that make reservations. There's a percentage of people that make I They don't that. cancel, they don't show yeah. up. And so, you know, again, in a small restaurant, yeah. you've got to have those seats. Yeah. Well, when I've noticed that, I, I can't even, I can't pick. 
think of any restaurants particularly like that, whether they were large or small. It's just when it happens, I, it just sends a message to me that I'm not always crazy about. Because I may want to go to a restaurant, but I don't want to go if I know I'm going to be standing in line waiting anything more than 20 or 30 minutes. Well, now there's some, I mean, you know, apparently it's three hours for an Ball burger. I was just going to say, imagine right. if they took reservation, they, they yeah. lose millions of dollars. Right. But also it's just like... <clears throat> well, if you come to expect that in that kind of restaurant, that's, yeah. another, that's yeah. another matter. It's I'm part like, of, you make it part of your night out. You put your name in it and then you walk around and go have cocktails and come back. True. Uh, is if there was a place that you could go back to that you reviewed way back when mm-hmm. what, that isn't around anymore, oh. what would that be? Uh, Giannotti's, the Italian restaurant, my all-time favorite Italian restaurant owned by a man named Vic Giannotti, whose father, Nick, supposedly invented chicken Vesuvio, but you and I have talked about this <laughs> off mic, and you convinced me that no, he didn't invent chicken Vesuvio. That was a dish that had been around since the 1920s, perhaps, or Vesuvio 30s. has many fathers. Yeah, I think. suppose it does. But that would be my favorite. The, the, Vic Giannotti was a genius. His father also, with the way they did it. was a, a Neapolitan, Sicilian kind of, well, more Neapolitan than Sicilian, but a good, basic, red sauce restaurant, even better than good. It was great. Uh, so that's a restaurant that I miss. Um, Le Francais, not that I went there often, but uh, when I went, it was always an experience, very special. Those two stand out among the restaurants that I wish were back. Uh, Arnie's in the city was always a good place. The Arnie's North was great for a terrific Sunday buffet. And that's Arnie, Arnie, Arnie Morton. Morton. Yeah, who left, certainly left indelible impact on the restaurant scene through his daughter Amy with, uh, what's it called, Found, Found. and uh, his son David, who's working with Michael Cornick in establishing a chain. And his, and his other son, uh, Peter Morton, who, who created the Hard Rock Cafe. They've done okay for themselves. They have done so. very well. So, Josh. Yeah. It's Friday night. Yeah. Your dad comes in. What happens? <laughs> you make it happen. <laughs> well, you're, you're courteous enough to give me the heads up. You always make reservations. Oh, yes. Actually. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. But we get no but, special treatment. I mean, we would. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I say that positively. Yeah. Joshua gives special treatment to nobody. I mean, he has people who are who come in again and again. And obviously, they're recognized once they're seated there, catered to. But so is every guest. Well, uh, I mean, uh, well, <laughs> two let's just rephrase. He doesn't give special treatment to anyone. Let's just <laughs> tweak that a little bit. We we acknowledge and 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 we we do recognize our, do. our regulars and our family and our friends, and we always make note of it to the server, to the kitchen. We always know when friends and family. Or whomever is in the building, and 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 yes, they don't. That doesn't mean something different happens. It's just a heightened level of awareness. And I, I, maybe I, something I, will happen. I, I really well, enjoy watching Josh work the dining room because he knows how to do it so well. He keeps an eye on his staff and makes sure that everything's going well. But he always has time to stop and talk to people. You know, not interrupt. I don't work. You know, it's. I always say my partner does all the work. Mark does all the. Work. He's cooking. I just walk around and talk to people. Well, you know, Arnie, of wine. Arnie, Morton, easy. Arnie Morton used to say, I'm just a saloon keeper. I think right. he was a hell of a lot more <laughs> yeah. than a saloon keeper. And Josh is a hell of a lot more than a saloon keeper. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's whether it's my dad or whether it's, you know, someone who's been here 20 times since we opened, which actually it's happened. We've got a ton of regulars. You just, you make it happen. And every restaurant has that. When XYZ, you know, regular walks in the door without a reservation, what do you do? What do you do? You, what do you do? Um, you juggle. It's, it's, you know, the reservation system. The door is like a, a jigsaw puzzle crossed with a domino set, crossed with a Ponzi scheme. And you make it happen. 
I will leave it at that. Industry trade secrets. <laughs> no, well, I've seen how you work. Will uh, remain unspoken. And I mean, you. Uh, if somebody doesn't have a reservation and you know them, you will inform them of that, and you'll ask if they would like to wait. I run the door. Yeah. Yeah. We I mean, that's door. how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was told to ask you about Julia Child doing your answering machine oh. message. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, Julia Child was a wonderful lady, and now let's face it, I mean, she was really big time, and I was just a little speck on the map, but I used to do a program called In the Kitchen. It was a recipe of the day, and I would have uh, various cookbook authors who were traveling around the city, around the country, promoting their latest books, and Julia came in several times, and I had the opportunity once I was invited to have dinner with her and a group of other people, uh, and I was very flattered by that. And we had dinner at what was then Ombre, wonderful dinner, about eight or ten people in a, in a small alcove out of the way. And then I had her back a few times to do uh, in the kitchen where she'd do a recipe. And uh, I said to her one time, I said, Julia, would you mind recording a message for my answering machine at home? She said, of course I would. And so she did. Hello, this is Julia Child. Eileen and Sherman, she actually said Arlene. Arlene and Sherman are out. They're, can, they're in the kitchen and can't come to the phone now. Please leave your message. And uh, so that was that. It was a very neat thing. Uh, <laughs> once she came in and uh, she was staying at the Ritz-Carlton and I just happened to ask her, I said, well, what did you have for breakfast this morning? She said, well, I had bacon and I had ham and I had eggs and I had some cereal and I had coffee and I had some sausage. See, that's a mighty big breakfast. I said, people don't eat that way anymore. She says, well, I do. <laughs> she was a wonderful, wonderful person. Just as, as warm as could be. Uh, she knew exactly what she was doing. And there was no need for her to be harsh with anybody about it. And believe me, I've interviewed a lot of celebrities. And some of them are not nice people. Oh, which ones? Oh, I don't think <laughs> Most of them are dead Name now. them. Yeah. <laughs> My secrets. <laughs> You ever crossed paths with like Sinatra at Slicker Sam's? Or I anything crossed like that? paths with Frank Sinatra Jr. and there oh. was one of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have respect for the departed. <laughs> Produced by Michael Gebert for Fooditor Radio. Music by Kevin McLeod. Fooditor.com.